Okay, one second. Did I get the blanks, Lee, or how'd, how'd you do with the blanks? She got them. She got them. If Lee got the blanks, then I'm good. Um, so. Okay. Um, any missing blanks? Anybody? Okay. Um, okay. Then questions from this morning or from any of the last couple of weeks. Yes, Lois. Two, B two. He is Cain's father. Cain's father. John Maynard. It's a joke. Okay. All right. All right. Um, okay. Questions or anything we've been covering in John eight? Um, yes. Jody. Mm. Oh, it's just another blank. Okay. Of which number? Two? B11. He brought death to the garden. I never said that. I totally never said that. So I don't even know how Lee got that one. Okay. Yeah. I said, okay, world. There you go. I said world. My, my sheet says garden, so. I was wrong, apparently. Uh, I, missed, I missed the blank. So, yeah, okay. Okay, we all, we all agree with Lee. Excellent, excellent. And then we're good to go. Okay, Renee. This is a real question, and maybe it's not answerable, but how do you know when, like, you're answering someone's questions about... God and Jesus and the Bible, when to stop answering their questions and let them know they need to be reborn? Um, I, I, think, I think we should be polite, and, and Paul reasons with people. God births people by his word. So the two, the, two, uh, the two agents credited in Scripture for the new birth are God's spirit and his word. So in John 3, you're born by the spirit. In James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth as a kind of first fruits by his word. And in First Peter, we were born again, not by perishable seed, but by the imperishable word of God. So as best as I understand the new birth, it's the Holy Spirit applying, working with the word of God. So um, using the word of God in your appeals, reasoning with people. And that's not, that's not to say we don't use emotion. In Second Corinthians 5, we implore you, be reconciled with God. Um, it means ultimately the decisive factor is not the cleverness of my answer, the winsomeness, there's a buzzword, of my presentation. It ultimately is going to be God. So Jesus talks about trampling um, pearls under your feet, not, not to throw your pearls before swine. When people make it, are clear, mocking, scoffing, not actually listening, I, I think at that point it's... Uh, I don't know when the exact line is, but at a certain point, Paul, Paul uh, wipes the dust off. Where is that? An axe. Hold on. Because it's a reference to Ezekiel. Um, he, he, uh, okay, axe. Let me look up dust. Dust. Axe. Give me one second. Um, hold on. Dust. And then axe. And it's going to be... 1351. Go to Acts 13. Thank you, Zeb. 1351. Actually, go back before that to uh, verse 48. Acts 13:48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit, which is, of course, what Jesus said to do. If you go into a town and they receive you, stay with the person with whom that you receive. But if they don't, wipe the dust off their feet. Um, so Paul, it's okay. I'm good. Um, there's one other phrase he uses. Hold a sec. Blood. 
and that's not a word, so spell, my spell thing couldn't find it. Hold on. Um, thought it was a word, but it's not. Let's try that. And just I do that. That's what I do is make words up. Okay. Um, go to Acts 18 um, for another expression here um, of Paul. 18.6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, I think there's the dust concept, and said to them, your blood be on your own head. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. That's a reference to Ezekiel. Uh, If you turn to Ezekiel 3. There we go. Ezekiel 3, starting in verse 16. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning or speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. If you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So when Paul says, I'm innocent of your blood, he's referencing this. I've warned you. I've given you the truth. You've rejected it. I'm I'm innocent of your blood. So when that happens, I don't know. But it does happen. That it happens, I think, is clear. Um, So just pray for wisdom would be my, my thought. Praying for wisdom. And there's a sense in which we don't want to be quarrelsome. I mean, I think at a certain point, especially if you're dealing with family reunions, Christmas, Thanksgiving, there's a certain point where you've, where you've witnessed, you've expressed the truth, and you can tell if you keep pressing the point, it's just going to make a fight. And God hasn't called us to do that, at least not in most circumstances. And you're, we're not all Martin Luther, you know. Um, so, Caleb. Okay, so you said that people might have questions about how they can't hear the word of God. Yeah. The Pharisees were unable to hear the word of God. And it reminded me of Psalm 115, uh, which talks about uh, the making of idols. Um, basically, it says they have their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Then it goes on to say that those, those who, who make, make them, them become, become like, like them. them. Yep. So do all who trust in them. And so I think the Pharisees had their idol of religion and therefore became like the idols of old with, or where they had eyes but could not see, ears but could not hear uh, right. the word of God and could not walk with the Lord even though they had right. physical legs. So. Yeah, that, the, the notion that we're spiritual mavericks or freedmen, that we go and serve one master for a time, then we go and serve another master for a time, and we pick and split our time. Is a, is a fallacy. So Jesus has said in John 8, um, when they say, we're not slaves to anyone, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Romans 6, we're freed from slavery to sin that we might become slaves to righteousness. And, and so the, the notion that once you've chosen your master, you've chosen your master, and you're not free to switch lanes all that easily, is, is unmanning to us, is humbling to us, but that's Jesus' emphatic statements and he's been making it through the gospel in in John 6 no one can come to me unless the father sent me draws him that's why I said to you no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and then here you can't hear my word bear to him because you are not of my father you're of your father and that's why you can't hear Um, absolutely but your point they're responsible again we're tempted to say if it's if they can't if they can't hear, then how is it their fault that they reject Jesus? And Jesus' argument is, is moving exactly the other way. It's not that you're sort of like your father, the devil. You're absolutely conformed to his image, so much so that precisely because the devil has no truth in him, you hate my truth. It, it, it's, the, it's the crowning point of their guilt. It's not the basis of excusing them. 
it's your one-to-one, your will is to do your father's will. Yeah. Who's, who's next? Did you have someone next, Scott, or no? Okay. Any further points on this? Eric. So how can we live as human beings who sin but declare ourselves as children of God? Um, or who struggle with sin sure. as a part of our nature? Yeah, let's go to First John. Now, th- this is tricky because what Jesus is saying and what these, even dealing with what we dealt with last week, is very black and white and absolute. So you get some very strong statements in First John um, that are, are kind of hard. <laughs> so in First John, we get, ooh, um, I like the ESV. The ESV brings out the, the verbal force more clearly. When I first read this, I think it was the New King James. And the New King James is anyone who sins doesn't know God. Um, so let's go to, oh, verse 4. Um, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. I really like the ESV's makes a practice. And without getting into Greek grammar, I think that's a better translation than what I first read when I became a believer, anyone who sins. Because at that point, I'm like, well, I sin. Um, but even there makes how much of a practice, right? Um, and so I'll go back to, to uh, Second Peter, which is really the passage that I've, I think is most helpful in synthesizing this. Second Peter 1. So, again, the argument is in verses 3 to 4. Here's what God has done and made available for you. And then verses 5 through 11, avail yourself of it. So, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, so that's what he's done. He's given you all these promises. He's given all these things available for you so that you can become more like him. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And here's, here's the key point, Eric. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. So what qualities? Well, the seven qualities he just named. Um, v- virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. If these qualities are yours and increasing. So wh- who are you becoming? Whose child are you looking more like? You, you will be conformed to the image of your father. And so, yeah, we're, we're saved sinners. And so there's a sense in which we still bear the mark of our old father. Over time, we should be looking more like our heavenly father. So it's, it's direction and movement. It's not like it's a bar of attainment. When you're at holiness level 7.2, then you can know you're a Christian. Rather, what are you growing in? Are you growing in wickedness? Or are you growing in righteousness? Right, so... Um, it, so maybe the reason it sounds so black and white, so so not uh, or so harsh, is because of his audience, who he's speaking to, the corrupt Sadducees who report to event, you know, Caesar for their political power and their wealth and riches and. Well, except this, except I'd say what he says to them. Well, the text doesn't mention Sadducees in John eight; it's just the Jews. It starts with the Jews who had believed in him, and then that drops out. He just he said to the Jews. 
But I think what he says to the Jews, based on Ephesians 2, is true of every one of us as well. We were by nature children of wrath. Our desires, we were by nature carrying out the desire. Yeah, let me read that. Ephesians 2 was written directly to the church, and he says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the prince, according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. I think that's Satan. So we are dead in our sins, following Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So I don't think anything Jesus says here is particularly true of Pharisees and Sadducees. I think it's just true of, of humanity. Um, yes, it's also true of the Pharisees, but there's nothing about what he said that I think wouldn't equally apply to you and me in the flesh. But, um, yeah. Now, the language of inability is hard. Um, go, go to 1 Corinthians 2, where you get a corollary statement to what Jesus says. The reason you cannot, the reason you don't understand is you cannot bear to hear what I'm saying. 1 Corinthians 2, um, 12. No, sorry, 14, 14, 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I think that would be the corollary to Jesus' statement. The reason you cannot bear to hear what I say is you're of your father the devil. Um, unless God's Spirit is at work in someone's heart, they cannot. I, I think that's the plain teaching of Scripture. And then we got to figure out how to live in light of that and what does that mean. But I, I, I don't think it can be avoided textually. That that's what's said in numerous places. Matt. So is it true when I look at this that he's not, he's not telling them they need to make any change? He's just explaining to them that. Well, I think. Because yes, if, yes if no. I look at it like yeah. <clears throat> they have no power to birth themselves. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they can't. They can't physically change themselves. Correct. I get that they could pray to, right. to be birthed, but I'm, when I look at this, it's not like he's saying, you got it all wrong, you need to change your ways. He, he's saying, you got it all wrong and you can't change your ways. Right. Because, but, but if you follow the progression, the first thing he says to them is not your sons of the devil. The first thing he says to them in verse 31 is, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then they balk at his word. They countermand what he says. We're not slaves of anyone. And so he's got to this point because they won't recognize their sin. Then he makes it clear. I'm talking about slavery to sin. Like, yeah, but that's not us. We're children of Abraham. So he's dealing with people who he began. His first play wasn't you're helpless and you're children of the devil. His first exhortation was to urge them to continue in his teaching. They spit it out. We don't hate that. Now, the next thing he needs them to see is that they are that sinful. They reject their slaves to sin. And so he's getting more and more blunt. He doesn't start with your dad's the devil. He gets, I I just want to highlight, we're in a progressing discussion that has gotten to this point. He doesn't just start out like, hi guys, you're still trying to the devil. No, he gets there. He let them prove his point before he even gave him the point. Right, right. And it's because they rejected first they escalated, but no, we're not slaves to anyone. Yeah, yeah, you are. No, we're not. We're children of Abraham. No, no, you're not. Well, we're children of God. No, you're not. Because until they recognize, their, until they're willing to deal with their sin, there is no hope for them. So we don't know what Jesus would say to one of them who says, I think you're right. I, I mean, I think we could guess from the rest of the Bible. But the first step would be the putting your hand over your mouth and going, yeah, you're right. And I think for such a person as that, there's all the hope in the world. But while they're refusing to recognize, I mean, go to, go to chapter 10. We'll- because without recognizing that they need a savior. And need it at that level. Now, right. This is part of the reason why I'm, I'm, 
We're in our adventure club. I just taught last Sunday week. It was the fifth week on sin. I think it's fantastic because Jesus, every one of these people that Jesus is talking to, I have no doubt would admit they sin. None of them would claim to be sinless. The whole point of partaking in the sacrificial system is they sin. But they would think of themselves as fundamentally good people who do bad things periodically. And so Jesus is, pre- no, you're, be like Paul, no, you're dead. No, I'm just sick. No, you're dead. And really pressing that point. And so I, I think it's not a wise idea to teach superficially on sin, um, that the cure is going to correspond to the sickness. So look at, look at John, the end, right at the end of 9, actually, um, where this theme sort of gets picked up. We'll, we'll deal with this. is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and we're going to be in John 9 and 10 for a bit. I uh, love this section. But Jesus, after they cast out the man born blind, finds him. And um, verse 35, Jesus heard they'd cast him out. They found him, and, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus then said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The person who insists they're alive when they're dead, the person who insists they can see when they're blind, and this is part of the illustration. This is a man born blind. You and I were born blind like that. You and I were born deaf like that. You and I were born dead like that. And the Pharisees insist that's not the case. So there's no hope for them while they persist in that denial. Um, so that's picking up part of the theme. Like, what does Jesus do with people who refuse to acknowledge their sin? Judgment, ultimately. And that judgment is, and when the Holy Spirit begins to convict, go to John 15, I think. Is it 14? Um, Hold on. Uh, 14. I think it's 14. Hold on, let me just look it up. I'll find it. When he comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, Where is it? Um, Zeb, help. Okay. Hold on here. I think it's 14. I'm surprised I'm not underlined here. Yeah, when he comes, he'll convict the, sin, the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning his sin, because its deeds are evil, judgment, because the rule of this world has been cast down. Oh, it's 16.8. Okay, there we go. Okay, 16.8. Thank you. I was in the wrong chapter entirely. So pick it up in 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So that... The beginning work of the Spirit of God at work in someone's heart is the conviction of sin. So if one of these people were to begin to shut their mouth, stop refuting Jesus and actually getting convicted, A, it's an evidence that God is actually in the process of begetting life, and B, there's all the hope in the world for people that will admit that. Um, so the, this gets back to Renee's question. How do you know when, if they're just scoffing at the notion of sin— there's not a lot you can do. Um, as if to say, I know you don't acknowledge your sin, but I think you'll really love Jesus. It's kind of a package deal. And Jesus and his truth, because notice what Jesus says, if they were of God, they'd love Jesus. If they're of God, they'd hear his word. So I don't need to worry. I don't need to worry about the people that love Jesus but don't love God's word because they don't exist, right? Um, <laughs> which is why we don't need to be afraid of teaching the whole Bible and worrying about, let's not teach this truth that... No, the Jesus sheep here is, that doesn't mean there aren't texts that are difficult and hard, but at the end of the day, none of Jesus' sheep are going to finally spit out his word and hate it. They won't. Um, 
So we don't need to worry about that. So, yeah. Does that, does that answer your question? Lee wants, Lee wants to weigh, Lee wants to weigh in. Well, I think when we say that they can't hear, it's almost like a different language. And um, one of the, somewhere along the line, I'm guessing it was from one of your messages that the beginning of John, um, Jesus equals the language of God. Yeah. And what is logos? I mean, the word, it's so tied in intimately with him that you can't just separate words from who he is. Right. And if they're not getting the words, they just can't be even right. getting him. Jesus is the revelation. Yeah, right. it, it, it's, Carson makes this connection. So in, in, in Orthodox Islam, you, in the hardcore Orthodox Islam, you don't translate the Quran. Go learn Aramaic. Why? Because the Quran can't be translated. Um, so he uses this example. But if you were to ask a Muslim, could Allah have sent a different messenger than Muhammad? And they finally understood you weren't saying, you weren't questioning. Yes, yes, I know you believe he did send Muhammad, but could Allah, was he free to have chosen someone else to send? A Muslim would say, yes. Could God have sent another messenger than Jesus? Jesus is the revelation. The revelation is tied up in him. So he's the word, and what you do with his words, he, he is, yeah, he's, Hebrews 1.3, he spoke son. What languages did God speak? He spoke son. Like, that, it's kind of, yeah. Jesus is the revelation. His words are tied up with who he is. It, you can't really bifurcate in any legitimate sense Jesus and what he did and Jesus and what he said and taught. And so there is no, I like Jesus, but I don't like his teaching. Then you don't really like Jesus. Um, that they're, It's all bound up together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which isn't to say that people might not initially stumble on or be taught poorly or there's room for that. But at the end of the day, if, if we've taught and been clear and yeah, Jesus, sheep hear his voice. Um, so when we like so one other thing, when we talked about um, the irreducible gospel and I didn't put inerrancy in there. Yet, even though I don't think belief in the inspiration of scripture is a necessary prerequisite for salvation. Anybody who doesn't hold to God's word, I'm going to really question whether they're born of God because what's the hallmark characteristic of Jesus' sheep? They hear his voice. <laughs> so if you're not hearing his voice, massive red flags raise up really quickly um, because this is the word that you're saying birthed you. You were birthed by this word. Um, and you're supposed, so, so even though I don't think, I think... I can imagine that someone who preaches the gospel, what do you think about the Bible? I don't think anything in the Bible. No one's told me about the Bible. If someone who only encountered evangelism and witnessing, there's no book, right? They could have no opinion. They have no knowledge that there's a book called the Bible, and they could be saved. But I don't think they could gain that knowledge and then reject it. So they could be ignorant of Scripture um, or mistaught about Scripture. But, yeah, Jesus' sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. If you were of God, you would hear the words of God. That's Jesus. It's not you probably would. You would. Um, that, that's what he says. Yes. Okay, next question. So nobody's bringing up any questions about the predestinary implications of this. Okay, Timothy. Timothy Timothy's going to. Timothy's going to. Okay. That was just the question I was mulling over. <laughs> so yeah, uh, so presenting the word of God to people that are unbelievers yeah. would be wise because That's if the, they'll if, hear his if, voice. If, if, the new, if the new birth is the Holy Spirit applying God's word and Jesus makes it clear, the wind blows where the wind wishes, the spirit does what he wants, which of those two elements do I have any control over? the seed of the word of God. I can, mm. I can sow the seed. Yeah. And this is, this is Paul's language in first Corinthians three. One man waters, one man plants, God makes it grow. The spirit applies and makes the word fruitful. But the part of that equation I have any influence on is the word being present. So that's the part I need to be faithful with. And yet if there's growth, God made it grow. Right. So, mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. So when we share the word of God with an unbeliever, 
are we doing that because we don't know if they're of God, if, if they're going to respond to that, or does God actually change their response based, I mean, are, not are we doing something like at a God level, but, you know, is, is our action involved in their salvation, or is their salvation our going to action, happen or not? Our, no, our action's involved. In, God uses means. Mm-hmm. So Paul can say in Philippians, I know that this will work out for my deliverance through your prayers and the Holy Spirit. Our, God's insistent, our prayers, accomplish, things happen because we pray. Mm-hmm. I would just also say God is sovereign even over the things we pray. So it's, it's, it's not like we get out from under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. You know, so I, I'd ask, so let's take a flesh and blood person. You're praying for the salvation of your child. Mm-hmm. Could that affect their salvation? Absolutely it could. Oh, don't you? Where did that, does it, well, first question. Is it, is it a godly, God-pleasing desire to pray for the salvation of the lost? Yes. Where did that good thing come from? Your goodness? Yes. Oh, wait, wait, no, no, no. <laughs> it's an evidence of God's grace yeah. poured out in your heart. Yeah. So God poured out a grace in your heart so that you're praying for the salvation of your child. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if God works things in concert and harmony with his will or not. I mean, so, so when, I, when I'm burdened for someone, when I'm praying for someone or something, what I begin to hope is I'm hoping, I am begin to be hopeful that I'm so burdened for this person or for this situation that it's an evidence that God intends to do something. Because I, I don't know if you've ever been unduly, unusually burdened for someone or for a situation or a pr- problematic thing. We were just, man, I'm just praying for it constantly. The more that happens, the more hopeful I get that God's going to work. Because I, I recognize that those motives and desires don't come from me mm-hmm. you know um so my my assumption would be my starting default assumption would be god is moving in my heart to really pray for this person's salvation why wouldn't i start with the default i'm hopeful that that's because he plans to do the very thing i'm asking for yeah it, it's like it's it's a it seems like a hard thing to like understand and put on paper but i feel yeah. like we don't have a problem understanding like the story of jonah you know, if it yeah. was, I yeah. mean, God sent a whale to change, you know, he was yeah. so intent on using Jonah as a tool that he impressed upon him to the point of near drowning and yeah. being swallowed by a whale in order to get him to a point where he could be the tool he needed him to yeah. be. And and yeah, so the idea that like, oh, that's impressed upon my heart. Maybe this is the yeah. The sea crashing in, the the point where I finally give in and say, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll do what you want to do. <laughs> there's, there's a very helpful little book. I'll try to get a copy or two for the bookstore here. But J.I. Packer wrote Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And the small little book, this, this thick, maybe 100 pages, 105 pages. And the, his whole point is to try to harmonize evangelism with election and predestination. Mm-hmm. And he does it by, in chapter one, establishing election and predestination, and then spends the rest of the book, in light of that, how do you witness? How do you share the gospel? And I, I love how he begins. He, he, he argues that everybody in their prayer life is a Calvinist. You don't, you, how do you pray for your kids? How do you pray for your family? Lord, bring them to a point where they can make an uninformed, uncoerced, free decision. You say, save them. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. We, we pray that God save people. I pray that God works in the hearts of my children and causes them to love him. I don't, God helps Sophie to make a free choice. And if you ask me, I'd rather Sophie's will be, be, be bent to Christ than to be free to go to hell personally. Uh, You know, so I even, I wouldn't want, I would rather God not be using the, be a gentleman thing. I'd rather God not be a gentleman if I had to choose. So I ask God to, to give her a heart, for him and to to open her eyes and open my kids eyes to, to see the glory of the gospel and i'm praying to a god who does exactly that yeah so well and yeah and if you still struggle with the whole concept i mean just the the fact that even if you struggle to figure out the predestination my yeah. involvement yeah. versus other things yeah. my obedience to god is still the mm-hmm. thing i'm most responsible for i suppose and yeah. so where that's you know, to remain humble and say, I'm I'm not really, even if I'm not really sure, I know that I'm called to do what I'm supposed to do and and I can leave the results to God and and the the mechanism of how it works. Clearly it works. It clearly we're called to pray for each other. And, and, and so those aren't, 
the questions. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Go to go to Second Timothy two. But honestly, if I thought it depended on me, I I would never be able to get to sleep. No, every encounter I'd have, I'd think, man. I mean, this I this isn't hyperbolic. I'm I am prone to overanalyze and chase my tail, and I would go over a conversation with someone and think, man, why didn't I say that instead of that? Oh, why didn't I say that? And if I thought, man, if I just said that, maybe they'd be saved right now. I'd never get to sleep, nor would I ever, I mean, you think I'm long-winded now, I'd never end a conversation. <laughs> how, no, how, how, how could I leave a conversation? And how could I leave a conversation? If it depends on me, and I haven't yet found the right thing to say, how can I leave a conversation? And so, I, yeah, I would, I would not know how to live under that weight. And so 2 Timothy 2.24 makes it clear which part of the equation I'm responsible for and which part God is. So I am responsible for some stuff here. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So that's, that's my part of the equation. And woe unto me if I'm not doing those things. Mm-hmm. But what does God say he's responsible for? God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. So, so my responsibility is to be um, not quarrelsome, not a jerk, um, kind, able to teach, patiently enduring mistreatment. God might perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So, again, back to the universal sonship of Satan, of all people. Um, so, that's my responsibility. And so, that, what that means is, I can be entirely faithful to this, and somebody can spit in my face, or I can be very unfaithful to this, and they can still come to faith anyway. My, my reward or my discipline doesn't depend on the outcome. My reward or my discipline depends on my faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's dangerous to conclude one way or the other because of the fruit of your ministry, whether you're being faithful. Noah preached, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? 120 years, is that right? How many converts, he was call, he's called in the New Testament a preacher of righteousness. How many people do we know of who heard his preaching of righteousness? At most, his wife, his kids, and their wives. At most. 120-year ministry. At most, seven people that we know of. Was he a failure? No. And there are people who, this is what's terrifying from last week, there are people who I, I'm convinced will be in heaven because of the preaching of Judas. Mm-hmm. Judas won't be there. But Judas was a vessel used by God to to, to work miracles, to cast out demons. No, he's listed with the 12 and he's listed with the 70. And so that's terrifying. Judas could say, I'm good because people are getting saved under my ministry. God used Balaam's donkey. Yeah. You know? I mean, maybe we'll see Balaam's donkey in heaven, but I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh- Real so, quick, yeah, I haven't yeah. asked questions in months, and no, I won't go, for another going, several months. Well, and it's a slow morning, so no, keep, no, no. Going, keep going. Well, yeah. and just as an encouragement, I mean, yeah. think about, you know, the things that are hard to understand where God yeah. has clearly said, I know what's going on. Here's yeah. your role like you've yeah. laid out. You know, what, what we don't know or what we aren't given understanding about or, you know, the details. I mean, to think about that instead of like, what's God withholding from us, which is the old snake <laughs> question right. from the right. garden. It, it may be a mercy, you know, that we don't. You know, he's, you know, it's stuff that we can't handle in a sure. way. Do, do what I've, you know, just like with my children, I don't concern them with the finances of the house. I concern them with their duties, yeah, right. and, and that's because that's what they can handle. And, and I could certainly see myself in that toddler stage of, yeah. you know, from God's point of view. It's like, I'll give you what you can handle, and I'll right. take the rest, and you don't have to. I mean, we should be pursuing knowledge. We should yeah. want to know more about God. The, the, the other part that I find helpful of this is when you deal with man's responsibility and divine sovereignty, the part of that equation that I existentially affirm and know is my responsibility. The part that I take on faith is the sovereignty of God. I know that I make choices. I live those choices. I feel the guilt of those choices. I, I have no doubt in my mind I'm choosing and I'm responsible. 
I know I don't need God's word to tell me that my conscience tells me that right I mean this is Paul in Romans 2 their own conscience is accusing or excusing them I innately know my responsibility that's not the part I take on faith the part I take on faith is somehow through his sovereign glory and his power he is working all things together for the good of those who are called him according to his purposes that's the part I take on faith so the part that says Jeremy you're guilty and responsible for what you do isn't the part I take on faith that's the part I know and my own conscience tells me I think that's helpful as well the part that's a mystery that I don't understand is how God is working and doing all these things for his purposes so it's it, it, I find that bit is helpful as well. There's a mystery here, but the mystery is the same, the same Bible that tells you God hardened Pharaoh tells you Pharaoh's responsible and guilty. And so I don't get to pick and choose the two. So, or to put the mystery bigger, God is sovereignly able to work in such a way that we still justly and righteously retain our responsibility. That's the claim. And if you say, I don't understand that, I don't understand that either, but that's the claim. So it might even be helpful to put into the claim the responsibility. God sovereignly works in such a way that the, the agents retain their responsibility and their volition. That's what I think the Bible teaches. That's what I, I don't, there's a mystery there. I'm not, I couldn't diagram how that works. But the fact that the agents retain their responsibility is the part we all know. The part that takes revelation and faith is that God is working in and with those things. So I, I find comfort in that, that God's not saying, take my word for it, you're responsible. I know that. <laughs> That's the part I know. Is that, I don't know if that helps at all, but I, I, I take comfort in that, that uh, of the equation, the mysteries on the divine side. Carol Hardy. Oh, no, not Carol Hardy. Sorry. Okay. Please. Eric Kitterman. Cassie Kitterman. Hi. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, so. Hi. All of us have questions. Okay, all y'all. So, um, I need to map this out, I guess. Predestination comes into play where, okay, so Jesus is talking, we're all sinners, right? We're a slave to our sin if we're mm -hmm. practicing sin. Mm -hmm. But if we're his sheep, then we hear his voice and he knows his sheep. So, how do we not hear his voice before? Is it because we're foolish, because we're sinning, we're choosing our sin at that point? Or is that when he, I guess, whenever he calls us to be his sheep? Or That's where I think the language of John 3 is more helpful because John 3 makes it clear you need to be born. And so you, contrary to my Presbyterian friends, you don't come into this world regenerate. Um, right. And so, so you, what? Dude, you should join in with me with my buddy from Moscow. We, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, okay, fair enough. Okay, 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 okay. I'll, I, no, my jaw dropped when I was talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Contrary to a small subset of Presbyterians. Um, <laughs> No, no, I don't want to slander anybody. No, but there are no, there are some who believe that that the, the children of believers come out of the womb believing. Um, but contrary, I, I don't. I'm not one of those people. Um, and Zeb tells me there's not many of those people. So fair enough. But contrary, we we were all by nature children of wrath. That's what right. Paul says. So we were born children of wrath, and then we were reborn at some later point. So is that when we hear his voice? That, is that when we can recognize his call? Let's go to, to John us? 3. Let's go to John 3. Cl you're close. I would put, I would put that or one step. Or when we share that with another. No, nope. let's go to John 3. So let's follow the logic. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again or born from above. And then Nicodemus marvels and says, how can these things be? Um, Jesus says in, in verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you must be born again. Then he makes this analogy. 
And part of what works with this is the word for wind and the word for breath is also the word for spirit in Hebrew and Greek. And so in Hebrew it would be ruach. Um, and so, so God breathed in that in the breath of life or the wind, breath, wind, spirit. They're interchangeable. So the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The birth of the spirit is like the wind. The wind blows where it wants and you don't see the wind blowing. You see the effects of the wind blowing. So I would say, if you pressed me based on this, when someone sees, when someone begins to hear, when someone begins to understand, it's the evidence that they've been born again. The wind has apparently blown through. That's, that's when we detect the new birth. How do you know the new birth? It's when people start to see and believe. That's how we know the new birth's happened. But technically, Jesus is separating even the movement of the wind from the effects of the movement of the wind. Do you see what I'm saying? You, you, your, your only ability to detect the wind's movement is feeling it as it blows by you. My only ability to detect the spirit birthing is people come to faith. So that when someone comes to faith, hey, the spirit must have just blown by. That, so that's how we identify it. We have no, we, I don't get to see someone get born again. I get to see the results of someone getting born again. That I, so I'd even, if, you, if I had to cut it that fine, I'd cut it that fine. But so we, we have no knowledge of the new birth until people evidence the new birth. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. Amen. Okay. Well, Carol, then Lee, because Carol's next. Carol had his hand up. Um, I like the way you're tying together our responsibility to, to preach the gospel uh, and the fact that uh, God is God is sovereign in salvation, but you know sometimes I think we think uh, the Apostle Paul really preached this in uh, <laughs> in Romans, and uh, you know we obviously yeah. been turning over a whole lot of it in the Book of John. But yeah. I've, been, I've been reading through Acts. Yeah. Okay, Paul and Barnabas are preaching, and uh, the whole city it says almost gathered together except for the Jews that began reviling him as usual. And uh, so he's got a whole huge crowd. He's, uh, they're receiving a lot of, a lot of flack. Mm -hmm. And then he says this, he quotes from Isaiah, where I've made you a light for the Gentiles and so forth. And when the Gentiles heard this, this is uh, Acts 13, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as, as many. many as were appointed or ordained, a lot of translations say, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Amen. Yeah. So I don't know if you have anything to add to that or not. <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. No, and, and that's, and that's part, part, part of what I would say is um, I, I get that there's challenges and difficulty with, with the doctrine of predestination. I don't think there's much difficulty that it's taught. I think it's pretty plain. I think passages like that would be hard to get plainer. So when people are wrestling with how does how to make sense of that, how do I live in light of that? Well, that's great. Those are great questions. That, those are things to wrestle with. I don't think it's that hard to be shown that that is the way the Bible presents it. Um, even like the logic of John 8 today is just so plain. The reason you can't hear is you're not of God. Um, is like, how do, you, how do you say it more plainly than that? So, no, I have nothing to add to that, Carol, other than, yeah, the Bible unashamedly, again and again and again, with numerous authors, talks this way. We're the ones who are squeamish of it. Um, yeah. We got time for one more question. Well, I'm just... Oh, Lee. Also... So this, Lee, bring us home, Lee. Uh, well, uh, that... Uh, that wasn't a good one. Yes, that wasn't... <laughs> That those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them, grant them repentance. I, I think we just need to remember that it's just some, if this is something, and it's kind of like a mystery. We don't yeah. know why, who, yeah. why did God choose me? Why did he choose any of us? Right. He granted us, he just gave us that gift of repentance. And also like in Ezekiel where he right. changes your heart of stone to flesh. It's just like, it's a miracle, yeah. and we should be grateful and be assuming right. that God will do that for everyone right. unless he doesn't. Well, and, and let, me, let me take, I think the proper way to take the sovereignty of God is to make us bold and fearless. 
the, the wrong way. I mean, so guys like John Hudson, Hudson Taylor, sorry, John Hudson, Hudson Taylor had people telling him, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help, right? Um, I think the opposite. That, what that verse, one of the reasons I have that verse memorized is contrary to potentially what some of you may think, I don't enjoy conflict. I don't enjoy saying hard things to people. But that verse rings in my ears. And I'll, I've said this probably a dozen times. I'll say it, I'm sure, a dozen times more. If, if you had to go have a difficult conversation with someone and you were, I don't want to do that, and God sent an angel to you and said, Lee, I just want to let you know that if you'll be faithful to go talk to Don, whoever, and if you're patient, if you're kind, and if you're not quarrelsome, God is going to grant them repentance. Would you hesitate for a moment? No. It's only because I'm too busy predicting who and God will and won't grant repentance to. So a verse like that takes all of the, all of the rug out from under you if you're saying, they won't listen. I've talked to them a dozen times. They didn't listen then. They won't. Dude, how do you know what God will and won't do? Just be faithful. Let God worry about that. And so I, to me, that's how that verse pushes me is the only reason I'm fatalistically, I don't want to talk to them because they won't listen is because I've already decided what God will and won't do. So what it should do is no matter how many, what I should be thinking is no matter how many times they've told me to get lost before, no matter how many times they've scoffed at the truth before, perhaps this time God will grant them repentance. Perhaps this time they'll listen. My God can open their eyes. And it should make me fearless and bold to go talk to people because no amount of past experience can predict what's going to happen this time. That's what it should be doing. That's how the apostles were fearless in the book of Acts. So I think that's the right way to take that truth and apply it, not leaving us to inactivity, but to activity. The most hardened, I mean, isn't the example of Paul. God can take the most hardened unbeliever and convert them. Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, God delights in taking these trophies of grace. So get out there and be fearless. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, seed and knowledge of the truth, and worry about which part of the equation is my responsibility. And be thankful for the privilege of getting any part to play in God bringing people to himself. Okay, we're at time. God bless. Godspeed. Good day. Yes. Evangelism and the sovereignty of God. And I will endeavor to have two or three copies of that in the library, in the, in the bookstore in one of the library for next Sunday.